Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Steven Stahoski. I'm Larissa Whitaker. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Ben Clemmer. This conversation is about legacy sequels. If that sounds familiar, that's because this episode is kind of a sequel to a previous episode about legacy sequels that came out a few months back. Scroll down wherever you get your podcasts, you'll see Legacy Sequels No Way Home, or Is There, which was a conversation uh, for three of us about the concept of a legacy sequel, which uh, we'll be diving into today. I think maybe up front it would be good to just establish our what are our four qualifiers for a legacy sequel that we talked about last time. It is a work that follows the continuity of an original work, takes place further down the timeline, often focusing on new characters who become the point of focus, but you still have original characters present in the plot. And we talked about, obviously, Spider-Man No Way Home. We talked about the Star Wars sequel trilogy. I would absolutely encourage you to go back and listen to that conversation, though it is not a prerequisite for listening to and enjoying this one. You can listen to this one and then go back to that other one. And this is an opportunity to go back and look at a few concepts and answer some questions that we didn't get to ask Stephen. You were not with us for the last conversation, but you are here now. It is great (laughs) to have you. Do you recall your first legacy sequel experience? That was a question we went around and talked about. Um, Yeah, I guess. I think you kind of have to start with Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, as much as people don't like to talk about that one. And it at least hits three out of four. It hits three out of four. Indy's still the point of focus. Indy's definitely still a focus. But it definitely feels like a legacy But it's so far removed from the originals, and he's so much older and it was just so different He's from the originals. With everything. Yeah. Harrison Ford, not I mean, Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think that's kind of one of the first. I can't remember which came out first, if it was that or if it was Star Trek. Crystal, Crystal Skull was 08. Star Trek was 09. 09. So then the other one that, that immediately came to mind when you asked me earlier was, was the Star Trek reboots? Question mark? I have issue calling them reboots. Yeah. Because... Well, of reasons. And similar to No Way Home, they're very much in their own category because with, whether it's multiversal or whether it is going back and changing the original timeline, things get weird when you have a new point of focus, but it's technically just younger versions or different versions of the same characters. Yeah. And it's progressing from the old timeline, but it's a new kind con- well, J.J. Yeah, Abrams weird. does that. He works some aspect of that into almost everything he touches. And Star Trek was no <laughs> exception, where you have the original Spock running around and nobody ever explicitly states that the old versions of those characters n- don't exist, but they do exist because Spock is around, played by the late Leonard Nimoy and, and all of his perfection. And he's, he has lines where he says, you are my friend James T. Kirk, but you're not because my Kirk is on a different... Oh, the way it, it just gets yeah, so The way Nimoy like, gets to talk about that stuff in that movie is so wonderful. Like when he and... Zachary Quinto Spock finally get to have a conversation, and he and he turns and just says, "I am not our father. I am oh, not our father." It's yeah, just, it's so cool. So, like that was, I, I argue that that's really kind of a legacy sequel because J.J. Abrams brought so many new things to the Star Trek universe without writing out the continuity from the '60s. He just got to play around in a in a different sandbox with a lot more technology and bring his own spin to it. If you take those two out. I mean, honestly, I think the first legacy sequel that I really ever paid real attention to was probably Jumanji. Mm. When after I finally saw it, but and we'll we'll talk about that one yeah. later in the episode. But I think that's really where I fall in on that timeline. I didn't actually watch Spider-Man until after you guys did the episode. 
<laughs> so, Did we inspire okay. you? I mean, I watched it because I wanted to listen to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized I hadn't seen it. So I, I went back and watched it. And it was a great movie. Uh, again, it's one of those things that it, it really does feel like its own category because it's, uh, it's so hard for me to call it a legacy sequel because the focus is still on the new Marvel Peter, Tom mm. Holland's Peter. Yeah. Right, and they just started bringing the old versions of Peter back. It's like a legacy event. It's yeah. not a legacy yeah. sequel. It's not, even a leg- it's not a legacy sequel. I don't think so. The same way the Star Trek movies really kind of aren't a leg- legacy sequel either, but they've got those qualities. Yeah, and it's because of that point of focus issue. It, it's yeah. still fundamentally about we're still having a conversation about Peter Parker. We're still having a conversation about Captain Kirk. And, yeah, and it's not even a different Peter Parker. In all honesty, if you want to talk about a Spider-Man movie that's a legacy sequel... I think you actually should turn your attention to Into the Spider-Verse. It's a new character, but Peter Parker's in it. But this is a new character with a story that we've not seen before with Miles Morales. You've also got some connective tissue there with Chris Pine. And, yeah. <laughs> Love me some Chris you. Pine. <laughs> but, no, I, I think, like, really, if you want to try and ca- call any of the Spider-Man movie a true legacy sequel, I think that's actually where you're going to end up. That's an interesting point. And it is the superior Spider-Man film. I mean, so I loved it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you just got to watch one of our movies for tonight, like before you came, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally did. Um, so did that, did watching Ghostbusters Afterlife, spoilers, that's one of our movies. You're right. Did that connect <laughs> you to little baby Steven the first time he saw Ghostbusters? It felt really different than the original Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. And obviously it's, it's going to. There was a lot of really good good pieces like finding the ecto one for the first time was just <laughs> i loved that what a <laughs> <box>. <laughs> yeah seriously <laughs> oh um, god but i did watch it uh comment uh commentary on my life uh i watched it partially at 11 p.m on one night and then two <laughs> days later attempted to finish it after finishing a shift at work and making dinner while watching the movie so my attention was not 100 percent there but there's some really there were some really great scenes about it, and I'm I'm looking forward to really diving into that in discussion. But since I missed the first episode, that kind of gives you a little bit of my background as where I'm coming to this. No, you're you're back up to speed. We've now referenced the third episode that we did ever with Into the Spider Verse, and I feel like this conversation's going to also kind of feel like an episode from our second season when we talked about Halloween movies. Yeah, because we are not necessarily turning our focus to three separate films, but to three separate franchises good examples of okay we have an original work also from three different decades similar to what we did with our Halloween Eras conversation and then all with legacy sequels that have come out in the last 10 years
massive spoiler alert for any films that you hear the title. A movie that came out forward. fifty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Is Rocky fifty yet? No, it's not fifty. It's yet. getting close. It's getting close. If you go in order of when they came out, we are going to talk about Rocky. We're going to talk about Ghostbusters. We're going to talk about Jumanji. We're going to talk about Creed, which is our legacy sequel for Rocky. We're going to talk about Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, (laughs) our legacy sequel, which came out in 2017. And then we will talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife, which came out this past year and hit all of the feels for a lifelong Ghostbusters fan such as myself. So a wide range of territory there. We did kind of, like, especially if we're going to go chronologically, and we did kind of all get to bring different elements of these movies and these conversations to the table as we went. Caleb, I feel like you need to start with Rocky because this was definitely your your baby coming in or you had the most experience with it. Yeah, when you posed the question, you know, oh, let's do an episode on legacy sequels. What do you want to talk about? I kicked around Rocky and Creed and then Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. I'm, I'm still actually kind of disappointed we don't have Blade Runner on this list. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it at I some know, point. It might get its own episode or something because I love, I love the original Blade Runner. I was really, really impressed. Yeah, I think there, there's a lot to talk about with both yeah. of those. Because so. it also hits all four of the categories. It really does. It is, oh, it's complete, it's totally a legacy sequel, but it's, it was just really, really well done. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a good movie just by itself. I'm not really sure you need the original to understand the full complexities of the se- of the legacy sequel version. I mean, in the first 20 minutes of 2049, they find a body, which doesn't have any significance if you haven't seen the original, but if you have seen the original, it's, oh, holy smokes, it's her. Yeah, oh, absolutely, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but the movie would stand on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, no, you, it, if you hadn't phenomenal. seen the original, it, it could still stand on its own, but it loses a lot of its, some of its impact. It's still an enjoyable watch, even if you haven't seen the original. But they're just, they're brilliantly put together. I was super excited to talk about Rocky because I'd seen Creed you know, fairly recently, and I'd seen Creed 2 as well. Uh, but with the original franchise, the first Rocky, I don't like, it's not one that I watch very often. I always go to 3 and 4. Those are the ones that I watch, like, on repeat all the time. Don't don't give me that look, Steven. I'm not, I'm not giving you a look. Not at all. What, what look? Not me. Well, and we got to come into, I mean, throughout this process, there were, uh, for many of us, we, we all had first viewings somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful to see just to what extent the first Rocky is so autobiographical for Sylvester Stallone. I mean, Rocky is a down-on-his-luck boxer. He's not getting any breaks. And then the big fight comes along out of the blue, and suddenly, you know, he has a career, and he is like this iconic hero, folk hero in Philadelphia, which is basically the same thing that happened to Sylvester Stallone. He was an actor, wasn't getting any kind of action, so he wrote Rocky himself, just about yeah. his own life. First time I watched Rocky was with a bunch of uh, frat guys in Toledo. Like Creed wasn't even on my radar when it came out. I was a little surprised that we're bringing Creed to this table because the way Rocky felt, particularly having really only watched one repetitively, I've seen two... I've probably seen three. It starts to fall off after yeah, that, though. Pretty yeah. much. And, uh, According to some. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was no, referring like, to Stephen's viewing experience. Yeah, my not viewing experience. Not oh, right, 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 right. Not yeah. a reference. Not yeah. a, my, my viewing experience is not a commentary on how good the film is or is not. For me, personally, I think Creed is Sylvester Stallone's best performance I've seen in anything. And you're not the first person who's told me that. Because, a little background to the movie, 
unfortunately, his real life son, Sylvester Stallone's son, passed away yes. right before they started making the movie Creed, and that's sort of dealt with and talked about, you know, not in explicit terms, but the subtext is there in the film Creed itself. Uh, and he has even said in interviews he, you know, was able to use that movie as like a way to work through his grieving process. Well, and it has, there's some parallels to Ghostbusters Afterlife, just in to what extent both movies definitely are about dealing with grief and dealing with loss and just, okay, what have these characters been through when we are now visiting them so much further into their lives? It's a legacy of an original character. Right. But it's also, it's almost weird to what extent, like, it feels like Carl Weathers passed away with to what extent that movie is a love letter to Apollo. He's very much still alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's like, you could look at the two and it's like, okay, here's this love letter to Harold Ramis who's no longer with us. And then... Creed handles the father and the son so, so well and builds on the legacy from the original movies. What I love about, you know, Creed and Rocky, but the franchise as a whole is, you know, they're sports movies, specifically they're boxing movies, which you kind of expect to be these big sort of macho, uh, it's a bunch of men fighting, but they're really like poignant and they have a lot of like emotional maturity to them. No, I think I think you're spot on there. Uh, it does bring me back a little bit to last episode with Casey, where he he talks brief, very briefly. We spent a little bit of time talking about. He talks about the fighting community. He's like, if you want to get to know somebody, fight them. That it was the most loving and, and supportive community he's ever been a part of, and it's because, sure, you're 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 visiting a form of physical violence on another person, but to do that safely and in a, and in a way that, in the case of boxing, is for sport or in the case of combat is for show you have to be able to count on the guy across from you to not do something stupid and that kind of accountability does build this space where you can you can bring some of that more emotional side to the experience to the forefront um, i think in particular the Bach, the rocky movies do that better than some other examples of, of your oh, classic they do uh, boxing movie a fantastic job of it i mean the the original franchise is basically the story of the relationship between Rocky and Apollo Creed and like how they start out as you know they don't know anything about each other in the first movie Creed just picks Rocky because he needs someone to fill in the fight and he's like Mm -hmm. okay this guy's a dope who I can win give the people a good show but whatever and then when he almost loses he's like all right I hate this guy because people think you know he's better than me and clearly he's not he's just this bum from the street yeah in the second movie Creed is like super antagonistic towards Rocky because he wants him to fight him again he's always trying to get him angry and then go into the third one where he trains him he's like okay I hear where I was now as the champion so I've been there I'm gonna help you out and then oh his death in the fourth one it's so sad This was the first time I had seen either Rocky or Creed. The closest I've come to watching sports movies is seeing like Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, which doesn't count. No, no, no. You'd be surprised having had uh, having had family members who are lifelong NASCAR fans. You'd be very surprised how Mm -hmm. completely accurate that movie is. Like no joke. I don't enjoy the movie just because it's too real. (laughs) (laughs) Beside the point. Well, just. (laughs) But when it came to Rocky and Creed, I sort of anticipated because I, not knowing anything about the films, had associated them with the same sort of hyper masculinity. I assumed films like Godfather fell into the category of. And so I was like, I better buckle up. I don't know if this movie's going to be for me. (laughs) And I was taken aback by how sweet and heartful both Rocky and Creed are. And I think that's the through line 
between both those films, and I'll admit I haven't seen all the others in between, that makes them so enjoyable and meaningful to me as a viewer. Yeah, just to what extent both of those, even if you just take the original Rocky and the first of the two Creed films, you still have wonderful relationships at play and the different dynamics with your primary cast, the relationship between Rocky and Adrian. Caleb, when we were watching Creed, you pointed out, because I had missed it, completely until we were inside the restaurant but the fact that the restaurant is called Adrian's and she's no Mm. longer around and just and then as Rocky himself is dealing with being diagnosed with cancer and then the audience kind of realizing oh no we've proven to this point with all of the films that clearly the only thing that can kill Rocky Balboa is Rocky Balboa (laughs) if he decides he doesn't want to get the treatment and then just how that parallels his relationship with Adonis and just oh yeah no no both movies handle so many of the relationships and dynamics in them so well Rocky isn't necessarily about the boxing it's about the man and that's why you get that that emotional through line that is still carried through oh yeah. going oh 100% and because he's the same age and we're <laughs> having Rocky some fun. Is 76. We, we were having some fun on, on a tangent about how old Sylvester Stallone actually is now, but he was the same age Burgess Meredith was when he played Mickey in the original Rocky, now playing oh, the mentor okay. character. Yeah. I think we have mm-hmm. the same parallel in the Star Wars sequels with Alec Guinness and Mark Hamill as well, if I'm recalling correctly. It's kind of cool mm-hmm. how that happens sometimes. Yeah, and you're, no, you're, you're right. And just seeing him so wonderfully, like the way he steps into the mentor role, it's this beautiful blend of the hearts of the relationships that make up the drama of the movie, as well as a source of so much comedy, whether it's trying to catch a chicken or keeping up with the van. It's like, okay, wait, let me warm up. Rocky's already hit the gas pedal and is driving away. (laughs) There's so much playfulness and like tenderness across both the movies. They seem like really real people. And Adonis Creed is such a compelling character too. Mm -hmm. I mean, he follows, you know, it's the same thing. It's not like, oh, Rocky is the interesting character and Creed's just the guy who fights. Like, he is also dealing with these real, like, human struggles in uh, such a good way. He's and that's, that's, so Michael, well. that's Michael B. Jordan. There's a really compelling aspect to the story of the once great now being the mentor. And another really good example of that storyline playing out, how many of you have seen Cars Three. I have. That movie is so strangely adult for being a children's film. Okay. The grief of retirement. It's insane. It is. The second one was bad. All right. Just I like the second, the second one. Was That's not an unpopular very... opinion. Okay. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care for it. My my three year old loves it. He loves all of them. And so the, so these are very very forward in those my two, mind right Those now. two things might be related. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but the third one, you get to watch Lightning McQueen. It's so weird. Get outpaced. <laughs> And get he turns into the old guy. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. And you're with him but grieving that the whole yeah, time. It's so well done. And I think you can maybe see a little bit of that when you look at something like Creed, where the once powerhouse, the once grand champion, you know, you can't take those punches. You can't keep up with the young guys, but you can teach them. Yeah. You can show them and give that knowledge on. And cars did a really cool job of of showing how Lightning tries to process the fact that he's not the, the quickest and the youngest and the fastest, and then how he comes to the point where he has to give that knowledge to someone else. So for round three, Electric Boogaloo for Legacy Secrets, <laughs> we talk about cars and cars. Three. You know? <laughs> Is it? As well as Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, there There's <laughs> a spectrum for you. 
goodness. It just, I guess part <laughs> Everything of, is art. But then part of the conversation is how long do you have to wait before it's considered a legacy sequel? I don't know if you would be able to fully count Cars I don't think 3 as a legacy sequel Cars because well, you're, you're still Lightning McQueen is still... Yeah. It they're, would be like counting Bill and Ted face person. the music. Yeah, they're bringing up a new person, but the focus is still still 100% on Lightning McQueen. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, like for the purposes of this conversation, <laughs> it doesn't count. Well, <laughs> and that's where of these three films we want to spend some time on as far as character from original franchise and presence in legacy sequel, Rocky is at the center of so much of what happens in Creed. More so than... The original Ghostbusters appear in Ghostbusters Afterlife, although obviously they are building around the house of Egon Spangler and the legacy of Harold Ramis. And then if we want to also look at Jumanji, that one has the has the least presence of the original in it, but still builds on the original universe in interesting ways. Like all of these legacy sequels give you an interesting path forward. I remember when I remember just looking up things about Creed on the Internet as we were going through watching those movies. And just for Stallone, it was kind of a, okay, if this franchise is going to have new life breathed into it and go in a different direction, someone else having their hand on the pen, someone else directing and and taking control of where this story goes is what it's going to take to get this really new and interesting and well-done chapter. Mm-hmm. And something I find interesting, too, about looking at a movie like Rocky that came out close to 50 years ago and Creed that came out seven years ago how the film's paced that is consistent or inconsistent. What I'm trying to get at is that when I watched Rocky with you guys, I was taken aback by how much time they put in letting you as an audience member build a relationship with Rocky before anything about the fight even comes up. Like, you spend, what, the first 20 minutes just sort of going about his day with him? It feels him? very slice of life, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, the the first Rocky, I remember the very first time I saw it, I must have watched it before the fraternity because i remember being younger and thinking man this movie's kind of boring it's <laughs> 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 just something that like 16 or 14 year old me would be would have said yeah because now i'm like oh man that's, that's the kind of movie i want to watch yeah there's a lot of you know just shots of him walking down the streets mm-hmm. of philadelphia which is cool bouncing his rubber ball which he still has in creed by the way my my experience would have been polar opposite because the my first exposure to rocky anything was not even sitting down and watching a full movie it was i must have come into the room for the start of and then the fight at the end of rocky 2 and as far as intensity and just is like, oh my goodness, this is a lot. But this that was my introduction to Rocky. Fight. That's a really well fight. done fight. Yeah. You oh, know, my word. keeping the, the train rolling from our previous episode. That's a really well done fight. Well, and, and then in Creed, I mean, there were so many moments where you're just like, oh, good. Like, you you, f- you felt mm-hmm. the impact. And the cinematography yeah. in clocked. Creed is next level because yeah. the, I think the opening of, yeah. you know, the final bout or the first, you know, the first round mm-hmm. in the title fight at the end is one take. They do the entire Whoa. round in one take. That's impressive. Or it's very know, impressive. at least it looks like one take. I don't know. No, I, know, I, some cheating, I think so. But. That was something I was surprised with with Rocky itself, too. That's such a pretty, saturated movie. It's just nice to look at. The textures are just, they seem really rich, just like they're trying to show you how rich the characters are, like focused in really deeply like that. Yeah. Well, and it's, I remember the colors in Rocky being yeah. very vibrant, too. Mm-hmm. A lot of reds that really pop. Well. And this goes so far beyond the presence of the statue. I mean, Philadelphia is a character, and 
setting his character might be a good segue into I mean, Jumanji. yeah, completely <laughs> into Jumanji or Ghostbusters. Well, uh, that's, that's fair. The, city, it, the yeah. city feels like more of a character <laughs> in Ghostbusters than even maybe necessarily the setting is in Jumanji. Although the setting as a character is key to the argument that Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle is a legacy sequel. But if we're going to stick with the city... All right. Michael, New York versus yeah. Philadelphia here. I mean, like, they're, they are as much a character in and of themselves. And this is obviously a movie we got to spend some time on when we did our Halloween era yeah. episode, just growing up with it, growing right, up with the toys, growing it. up okay. with the whole We experience. gave the original a good amount of love. Oh, yeah. Because right. there's a lot there to love. Right, because I, I remember mentioning that Ron <laughs> Jeremy is a in real life, but he's a famous porn star, and he's an extra in the original Ghostbusters, like front and center on screen. That's how you, that's how you know the New York and Ghostbusters is a scummy, scummy place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. I don't remember talking about this. But I didn't. Oh, I swear. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe I didn't. Yeah. Maybe you didn't. It's the. It's, well, I think it's at the. You know, the, the library. At the end. Right? It's oh no! Everyone's there in the, the crowd period. and the. Yeah. You know, Outside Spook Central. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I, yes. Well, and there's. I don't two, think you did mention it, but I do. I did know this. There's two pieces of media that. There are two Ghostbuster-specific pieces of media that we tie go. in here. The first was, I believe, actually a, a documentary you and or a, or a mini documentary that you and I watched with John. Oh yeah, John showed about, us yes. the, the movies that made us. Yeah, and in that they talk about just the insanity of trying to get the naming rights because there oh, was another yeah. TV show and animated series called Ghostbusters that is completely different. And so they're trying to make what There's we like now iconically now. think of, yeah, as the Ghostbusters, they're trying to get the rights to it. And it wound up working out that the film executive who was helping to produce the movie ended up at the company they were trying to buy the rights from. And eventually one of the first things he did on the job was, hey, give them the rights to Ghostbusters <laughs> or, or sell them rights or just or point is right, got yeah, that sure situation resolved. And, and the scene that. <laughs> You just referenced where Ron Jeremy is an extra outside and the mm-hmm. crowd is chanting Ghostbusters. That was part of the case. It's like, hey, this is the crowd's in it. This is this is clearly the momentum is here. The 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 people people like Ghostbusters. This name is working better than I think the alternative was Ghostbreakers mm-hmm. was the alternate. And then also from that sequence, I watched a video recently of Jason Reitman just going around New York uh, with the cast of Ghostbusters Afterlife kind of doing a tour to Ghostbuster sets of significance throughout the movie. And so, of course, outside the public library, going to the firehouse, and and, and it was also when Ivan was still alive, so it was wonderful to go back and watch that. But uh, Jason described being a young kid on the set of Ghostbusters and watching the filming of that, and when this false street that they built that they then cracked and had cars fall into and just everything that they did in filming that sequence, it's just realizing, wow, the power of being a filmmaker, you can literally break the street. A going into business story becomes one of the greatest comedies and Halloween movies well, of all that, time. I think is the coolest legacy part of the legacy sequel aspect of Ghostbusters Afterlife that it's directed by the son of mm-hmm. Ivan Reitman who directed the original movie. Yeah, I think that is actually the the greatest part of that of Ghostbusters Afterlife being a legacy sequel directed by that's completely true. It's absolutely true. I guess we, it's baked into the DNA of that yeah. movie. It's so cool to see, and this is, again, new territory being explored with these legacy sequels. Because you go from the SNL and Second City and legacy of 70s and 80s comedy where Ghostbusters originates. 
and now you have a movie about family that comes from the mind of Jason Reitman and he talked about uh, at one of the media appearances for the movie probably a while before it came out because I think it might have been pre-COVID and the release of the movie was delayed by uh, the pandemic but he talked about how he remembered in his head kind of seeing this visual of a young girl with curly hair interacting with a ghost trap or this teenage kid at the wheel of Ecto-1 drifting through wheat fields and seeing these these ideas in his mind but not having any idea who these kids were and then Harold Ramis passed away in 2014 and then he realizes oh they're the Spanglers and Mm. this is the direction we're going to go with this and it again feels so much like a love letter to Harold Ramis in in a way that Creed almost felt that way for Apollo even though Carl Weathers is still with us and just from the fact that they were able to do phenomenal CGI work, I mean, in the beginning of the film, and you when you see an older Egon unmistakably driving back to the farm, standing there with a ghost trap, it's just like, oh my goodness, this is cool. Yeah, that and making was, that, that character was really, really well done. A hero fighting against the ghosts throughout the entirety of the movie, as we get uh, brought up to speed uh, on what has been happening with these new characters we're meeting for the first time, as well as. Ghostbusters Afterlife does something that answers one of my biggest criticisms of a lot of legacy sequel projects, which Mm. is as soon as you see old characters, you no longer care about the new characters because you have so many questions. It's going to pull your attention regardless of how much setup you've done. And Uh. the first original Ghostbuster we see is Ray on the phone talking to Phoebe after they've been arrested. And as soon as they're talking to each other, he tells you, Here's where Winston's at. Here's where Peter's at. Here's what happened with the falling out with Egon. You get so much information, and it keeps your attention where it should be. Like, that scene alone for me does so, just shows it to what extent this is a legacy sequel done right. You are keeping the focus of the narrative on the characters that you've introduced from the beginning, and you're finding interesting places, even if they're, I mean, two scenes each, cameos effectively, although the ending is epic, you're using your original pieces and your new pieces together so well. Jason Reitman and the whole team on Ghostbusters Afterlife just did an amazing job with that. Well, yeah, it carries the spirit of the original film. It doesn't ride on its coattails. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's where you see the biggest failing of the sequel trilogy for Star Wars. Is the second you brought back Han and Leia and Luke and gave us little to no explanation how they got there. That's all the audiences wanted. Yep. Yeah. And they never got it, and it's probably one of the one of the reasons why those are. It's why you and I struggle mm-hmm. with them. Yeah. It's why yeah. we struggle with them. You and me for sure. But no, I think that was one of the one of the greatest strengths for for Afterlife was what you said, Caleb. It, it doesn't ride on the coattails of Ghostbusters one and two. It it's very definitely it's very, definitely its own original, but it uses that spirit and that momentum. I have an interesting question for you guys. Okay. Slightly somewhat topical because its most recent season just ended. Do you think Ghostbusters Afterlife would be what it was if Stranger Things didn't exist? Ooh. That's an interesting question. Ironically, my starting point would be one that a lot of Ghostbusters fans didn't necessarily care for, the 2016 reboot. And... But Jason Reitman will cite that film and say, hey, this showed that there is still a love and an interest for Ghostbusters. Here we are 30 years later, 
still talking about this property, still talking about this franchise that so many people love and there's interest in. Like, I think if Ghostbusters 2016 hadn't happened, Afterlife might not have happened. Mm. Because for years, it was, okay, when are we ever going to get a Ghostbusters 3? And between the falling out between Ramis and Murray, uh, the past a certain point, it's like, okay, we're... <sighs> We're not exactly in uh, ghostbusting shape anymore here, guys. <laughs> like past a certain point where it's like, okay, are you going to ask these retired ghostbusters to carry a movie anymore? And Pat, like, it looked like the video game that we got in two thousand and nine was as close to a Ghostbusters three as we were ever going to get because it was set in the early nineties, mm-hmm. and you did have the original actors come back and reprise their parts. That's cool. But I don't know if anyone else wants to speak to the Stranger Things element of that. Please do. But but I know without even though a lot of people did not care for the reboot in 2016. It was a necessary catalyst. The 2016 just proves if you're going to have a movie with heavy improv, it needs good editing. That's fair. That's that's my take on that movie. <laughs> I think you're gearing more towards would would the movie have been successful because of the casting? Well, there's or the casting the aspect nostalgia. because Finn Wolfhard yeah. isn't is both and it has that nostalgia. But to me, it just felt very similar. Maybe it's because it has those... You know, younger children, preteens, teens, solving mysteries, uh, mm. and so that that vibe felt yeah. very similar to me watching Afterlife. No, I, I as think it did fair. watching Stranger Things. Yeah, because I mean, especially podcast and Phoebe feel like contemporaries to mm-hmm. the younger. Right, kids, you know, yeah. the kids are very like sassy. They're like appealing to outcasts in both yeah. of those productions. So I think that to me, what I enjoy so much about watching Stranger Things is the same thing I enjoyed so much about Rocky, where like even though the story is compelling and you're watching them move forward in this goal they're trying to accomplish, whether for Rocky that is to redeem himself in some way or to win the fight or just to be able to make it through the fight or for in Stranger Things the more straightforward of like we're trying to find a missing kid and explore and understand all the mystery here while the genres are different what I like about both of them is how they're so character driven and there's this real heartfulness and like how the characters relate to and connect with and struggle with each other is what drives so much of the story even while there's these other bigger plot points happening around them and they're also both pretty to look at. Like, they're really saturated. They're, there's just personally, like, how I prefer to look And thanks to, to Hopper, there's almost as much punching. There's another aspect to this, and I think this is definitely a tie-in to Stranger Things because for anyone that grew up with 80s nostalgia and properties as they were new or for those of us who discovered them in our early lives in the 90s, there's a lot to go back and just see, oh my gosh, they're referencing so many different things that I love and grew up with. And then in the second season, the kids even dress up as Ghostbusters. And again, it's ironic that Finn Wolfhard winds <laughs> right. up in both properties. But you also have the handling of a legacy with a legacy sequel, which is part of why I think like Creed and Ghostbusters Afterlife might have been two of the best to do it. If you're a fan of Rocky... Oh, goodness, it is so cool to see that performance from Stallone. Or if you were a fan of the original Ghostbusters, and obviously Harold Ramis is no longer with us, it's taken us forever to get to this point where the original Ghostbusters are ever going to reunite as these characters again. And, oh, man, the finale is everything you could have wanted and more. And just getting one more final shot of the four of them together, mm-hmm. fighting a ghost, blasting away on the protest. And it packs. is really sad to see the three who are alive in real life and alive in the film 
you know, say goodbye to Harold Ramis at the end. Ugh, that does. Yeah. Especially Aykroyd. That he hits. Not, he is not acting. No. Yeah. No, no. Oh, that, was, that, was, that was hard. Like, it was hard because you, you can see that in other films where, yeah, these guys aren't acting anymore. This is. Mm. Um, but, but they're it using does. it to process, kind of exactly. like Stallone did with, with Creed. Yeah. yeah. And Art's magical. Yeah. Art's wonderful, man. That's why we're here. Oh, gosh. It's ironic we've paired these three films as we're thinking about it because I realized there's now a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife in production. Really? Oh, really? So. All the we legacy could, sequels have sequels. Yep. You knew exactly where I was going <laughs> oh, with wow. that. Because we have Jumanji the next level, we have Creed 2, and there will be a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife. So we could oh. do, And there's going to be a Creed 3. Yeah. So we could do a sequel conversation to our legacy sequel conversation <laughs> about the sequels point. to legacy sequels. <laughs> yes. You just Is used the just word enough? sequel <laughs> more times than I could count. <laughs> And that might be because I didn't stop and get coffee on the way, but it also might be because you used it a lot. <laughs> and just like, is there at what point do we take a step back and we're like, I think that story's done. I think we did it. We did it, guys. Well, like, <laughs> and Afterlife's going back to New York because they oh, show that in the neat. final sh- one of the final shots of the original movie. That okay, yeah, okay, if we're going to change the setting. They're they're planning. I hope to go the back. adults are not in in the sequel to Afterlife. Yeah, I, I, like them. I would say, <laughs> with one exception, I agree. Just in that. Oh. Ernie Hudson made a comment that he would love to see Winston Zedmore become Nick Fury of the Ghostbusters. Oh, that'd be And neat. I love that idea. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I forgot that, that would be scene cool. happened until you said yeah. that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Now, I realized the reason I wanted to mention that the legacy sequels that have produced sequels is I realized I have one quote from the more recent Jumanji movies in our notes here. And it's not from Welcome to the Jungle. Yeah, it's, it's from, from the, the sequel, next level. It? Did I just kill Eddie? <laughs> By talking too slow. <laughs> Just like he always said I would. Um, yeah, so the, the sequel is actually still just, I think it's just as much fun as the original legacy sequel for Jumanji. Jumanji was one of my most favorite movies as a kid after I got over the fact that it scared me. Mm-hmm. It's scary. The original it's is scary. 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 I was like, man, why did I like this movie so much? I, I hadn't watched it in a long time. And then Georgia and I watched it. I remember sitting down and going, this was one of my favorite movies as a kid. It's so funny. And then we turned it on and we started getting into it. I went, oh, God. <laughs> why did I like this movie? Because I, do, I don't do horror. Like, yeah. I, I've never cared for horror movies. I I'm going to make you watch a horror I movie for this podcast. I do like being scared. So it was really surprising to me that I had such a high opinion of Jumanji. The art doesn't change, we do. Yeah, Yeah, right? Even though I found it to be scary. There's so many really great things about that original movie that the legacy sequel did a really good job of carrying that momentum, but not the coattails. Right. It's It, it does it in such a, like an inverse way that's interesting. Because, you know, he's right. trapped in the game for what, 30 or something? Age is into Robin Williams because he gets sucked in as yeah, a kid. 30, like, almost 30 years. So, you know, he's an old man and dealing with that. And then in Welcome to the Jungle, you have Nick Jonas's character. The kid. Who was sucked in sucked in, in the, the 90s. Or the 80s? 90s. 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 Yeah. Sucked 90s. in in the 90s. Well, yeah, because he, he would have gotten sucked in because he has a PS1. Discovered. And he has an age. <laughs> he's just been Nick Jonas this whole time. Yeah, pretty much. That was one of the coolest things. When you're looking at uh, your legacy sequel breakdown of what makes it a legacy sequel... Obviously, there is not a single character, named character, in 
Welcome to the Jungle, that was in the original Jumanji. There's no character with a name that is the same. However, the game is still in it. And the game changes, and the game grows, and it adapts. So in the original, obviously the game is a board game. Two kids sit down in the 1960s to play this game. One kid gets sucked in. Other girl is told she's crazy for the rest of her life. Ensue events in the 90s. We get Robin Williams. Brilliant. Then, at the end of the game, everything is put back to the way it's supposed to be. So the two kids who started the game in the 60s get transported back to the 60s. And they go, this game is evil. We need to hide it away from humanity for all time. So they tie it up. They put it in a box. They throw it in the river. And the very, very end of the original movie has a scene where the box is washed up on a beach. And uh, two people speaking a foreign language have found it. I think it's supposed to be in France, yeah. You get the feeling that everything was just going to happen again, but now in France. So it stands to reason that they then tied it up, put it in a box, threw it in the river or into the (laughs) ocean. Because at the very beginning of the Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, a dad is taking his morning run along a beach and stumbles across the box of the game Jumanji. He brings it home to his teenage son. It's 1996. And his teenage son has, like, Metallica posters on his wall. And he's playing a PS1, an original PlayStation. And dad hands the game to his son. And the son says, board games? Who plays board games anymore? And puts it on the shelf. And then that night, the game magically changes itself into a game cartridge a la NES. And the kid plugs it in and gets sucked into the game a la Tron. (laughs) Sorry, I mean, that's, that's what it is. But then he's missing for 20 years. And that's that's like so it's it's the same plot, but instead of the game happening around you, you are now in the game. I like your theory that the game is a demon. I think the game is a demon, dude. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I think that's sense. very interesting. It's completely evil. Is a demon or something? What but does it, it want? What does it want? And it it abides by its own rules. It does. Like it, it sets its a set of rules forth, and as long as you follow them, you know. Yeah, as long as you don't die. Yeah. Follow the rules and don't die. Or in this case, don't eat cake. Don't eat cake. <laughs> Weakness, cake. <laughs> I, oh, I get it. It just means that I like cake. Boom. Well, and it also just, the way that everything resets if you complete the game, but you still have this previous timeline where whether we're talking about Sarah in the original movie or Colin Hanks slash Nick Jonas's dad in Welcome to the Jungle would have gone through multiple decades of trauma yeah. <laughs> before everything was resolved. And then when you reset, the only people who have memory of the game are the people who have played it. Yep. I just realized something, though. Mm. Because in Welcome to the Jungle, you know, the kid gets sucked in the 90s, and then it's the other four in, you know... 2016, 17? Yeah, something like that. But when they leave, they both go back to their respective times. So what... That makes me interested in the original movie. Because... They change the future. Robin Williams and Bonnie Hunt tell the kids' parents not to die, not to go on the trip that they die on. Yeah. Because they have memory. Right. But what happens to the kids, though? Because if we follow the same logic, the kids should have been spat out when they started the game. Oh, so there's a time travel problem. Yeah, Kristen Dunstan. uh, What's his name? They joined a game that was already in, in, in progress. 
So the game reset itself too. But the game was also already in progress in Welcome to the Jungle. So it's not going to match up perfectly. Yeah. I have no idea. This, there's, what there's happened a time to those paradox two children right that disappeared? <laughs> yeah. It didn't follow its own rules. Yeah. Well, the game has changed itself. It has. And yeah, maybe it adapted. So maybe it changed its own rules because it became a video game as opposed to being a board game. Mm. At a video game, you can pause and save and oh. jump in at random points. So It's a grandfather paradox because if the kids had never played the game, then Robin Williams would have never been able to get out and warn the parents mm. not to die. Yes. No, it's just a loop. Yeah. So, so by it, by yeah. Taking, taking the game back to the original point, that loop is now. Oh yeah, static. I see what you're. I wish is, that's mm-hmm. the trouble of being an audio medium because you <laughs> right? okay, really so, clearly by moving your describe your visual. Okay, so dear listener, if you will, the point. Imagine time as a string for the for the argument of, that we're going to make. Imagine time as a string, and I'm going to delve into quantum. Physics theory. String theory. As a music student. This is going to go really well. Imagine a string. Mm-hmm. At one point of the string, you have started the game. That now is running on its own line. Like the a loop in a roller coaster. The kids join that loop, that game. When the game ends, it comes back to the exact same point where it started and continues on on a different line. Ergo... Those kids never have to join the new line because the loop's already completed itself. That was really well done. I think that works. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. My brain was also just visualizing Doc Brown and Back to the Future 2 with the chalkboard. I know. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It's fine. Well, when, it's, when you start messing with how the, how the flow of time works, it gets a little confusing. I want to well, talk about Back to the Future, but not today. This is also where you have the importance in legacy sequels of hitting similar beats. Because the journey of Adonis Creed parallels the journey of Rocky in the first movie in a lot of ways. Or I would argue Ghostbusters Afterlife is an additional 20 minutes in length if they had not used the same villain. (laughs) If it wasn't Mm. another Gozer threat where the audience can know, okay, now we have the dogs, all right, now we have this. you You know what the beats of the threat are, so you don't have to spend as much time developing and fleshing out your villain. In the case of Jumanji, it's similar in terms of how characters are interacting with the game scenario, but outside of that, a lot of new rules and different elements at play, as well as kind of different, like, in some way, yeah, like in some ways the original, yeah, because the original is almost like helping them undo a tragedy after coming out of it, whereas the second one, I mean, but I guess in both you do kind of have the, hey, I am a better person or have found some sort of improvement as a result of playing the game. Like, that definitely comes through in yeah. the jungle. Well, in the original Jumanji, you know, all four of those characters are broken people in, you know, mm-hmm. various ways. I mean, one has been trapped in a evil game for 30 an years. An evil jungle game that's one has been actively hunted by another human being. Gaslit and told she's crazy for 30 years, and then the children to both kids had their, their parents, parents. Yeah. die at age. But also, it's not... It's not they, uh, Alan Parrish... The boy in the original started as the weak, timid, spoiled rich kid mm-hmm. who didn't get along with the other kids because his dad owned the factory. Who ruined one man's life by accident and then didn't own up to it. So there's a character development there where he comes out of the game and he goes and he fesses up to his dad, says, hey, I ruined the conveyor belt. It was, though he was a police officer in the alternate timeline, but it was your employee's new shoe that I think you really need to give him a shot on. 
and that's what saves his father's company. He keeps the town from going to, to crap because it looks like a rust belt town in the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very stereotypical. And you see that also in the Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle, where it's a coming-of-age story for these high school students. So it starts off very breakfast club. Uh-huh. I was I was going to say uh, that if you didn't. Yeah. Very breakfast yep. club. Yeah. Everybody it's, finds themselves yeah. in detention. It's and they're, they're yeah. archetypes. You know, oh, one's mm-hmm. the jock, Absolutely. one's the nerdy guy who, like, yeah. does all his homework for him. Yeah. Going back to another one of our Cinematic Icons episodes in a similar way to how The Last Crusade feels like an Indiana Jones film built on a Vertigo chassis. This is a Jumanji film built on a Breakfast Club chassis. Yeah. And goodness, it works. It works. Yeah. That's the thing. is, like, it works. And when they end up in the game, nobody has the power, the power, quote unquote, that they had in real life. The smart kid is now played by freaking The Rock. His weaknesses are literally in the game none. <laughs> Everybody discovers that the characters have strengths and weaknesses. And The Rock, you, you figure out by press, pressing your... Enorm- enormously overdeveloped peck <laughs> and uh, it pops up <laughs> and he goes strengths lists this whole massive long list of strengths weaknesses none but then the contrast of don't cry don't cry don't cry don't cry whatever his <laughs> idea was to have Jack Black playing a valley girl that man needs oh, a medal oh my word <laughs> uh, it was absolutely like so the casting was great and yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it also didn't negate the timeline of the original movie. And when you do finally find the kid that went missing in the game in the first place, he's living in the hut that Alan Parrish built. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they do come out and explicitly stay, state that. So there's, so there's your tie-in with your main character. Um, obviously, Welcome to the Jungle couldn't bring back Robin Williams because uh, he was already... He was already passed when they when they shot the movie, which is sad because he one hundred percent know he would have oh, he would have come in for a cameo would've. at some point. It would have been great, but you have the fact that Alex, when he gets out of the game, the kid who was trapped in it in the nineties goes back. He does not have to alter the timeline or or do anything to really improve the existence for the other four kids that were in the game. They take their lessons and run from there. He's a soccer dad now. One of yeah. the, well, that's one of the biggest differences between the original and the new one. In the original, in the 60s, this kid whose dad owned the major industry of the town going missing shut down the major industry of the town and the town went under. So in, in a sense, in the 60s, in the original, this kid missing had a greater and wider impact than in the 90s, which really only impacted his family. At least you're kind of led to believe that. So the ultimate timeline shift isn't as great because it does. It's like there's less of a ripple. Almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that really explains. Yeah. Well, and at that point, it's that, it's more personal. Like it is fa- a lot the more fact personal. that Alex names his his daughter Bethany. I mean, yeah. and just there's so many. I can appreciate any property that knows how to use Bobby Cannavale to the extent that he can lean into a villain role or. A property that knows how to properly use Reese Darby as so Nigel, our NPC. Oh my goodness! Yeah, not the the NPC Nigel, Doctor Bravestone. No. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good of you to come. <laughs> He's just saying the same thing over and over. Oh, this must be an NPC. Lots of fun little video game tropes being mm. explored in that one as well. So, yeah. Oh my word. Levels, multiple lives. I mean, there's there's a lot. They took a lot of really cool ideas and and ran mouth to mouth giving someone else one of your lives. That was interesting. That was an interesting twist. I always thought. Um, in the second one, 
they figure the out... The next level is the wild. The next level is wild. Yeah. They figure out that there's a glitch that they can exploit to switch their bodies. Oh, that's fun. So if you've fun. not seen that, that's really entertaining. But then there's a glitch that when they pick their character to get back in the game, they don't get the right one. I don't know. I'm not sure if there's really much more to cover on it other than yeah. really it did capture the spirit of the original yeah. while taking the franchise, as it were, in a completely new direction. Right. It's it's interesting because like Rocky and Creed feel very similar. They're sort of, you know, the same movie. But these are like totally different. Because like you were saying, the original Jumanji is there's a lot of horror elements to it. Mm-hmm. It's scary, man. Yeah. Especially it's so for kids. Heavy, like story. It's really scary mm-hmm. stuff. The the storm in the house with the alligator in the lake while you can't yes. see it. And the rain's pouring down. The spiders. Spiders are the hunter. Yeah. The hunter oh, yeah. himself is, is terrifying. Like, yeah, is mm-hmm. terrifying. Yeah. But yeah, then Welcome to the Jungle is like a hundred percent, just a yeah. straight comedy. There are some pretty uh, unabashedly jump scares in it, though. Yeah, like uh, Jack Black complaining at the edge of the river about <laughs> how he's by a hippo. fat, middle-aged white man, as opposed to the thin, sixteen, seventeen-year-old high school girl that he is supposed to be, and a hippo just kind of sneaks up behind him and then eats him. Sets the stakes. <laughs> Well, and everybody and, just goes, "Oh God!" <laughs> and before we turn on the mics, uh, Caleb, you were talking about just how, in some ways, the Ghostbusters elements kind of mirror the Jumanji elements because the original Jumanji, yeah, in the inverse. is more serious, feels again like like a horror film in some elements, but and it then, has those like weighty yeah. emotional moments. And then it Welcome does, to the yeah. Jungle is is heartfelt, but also vast so majority playful. comedy. Is Ghostbusters is vast majority comedy, and then Afterlife. More mm. poignant, a little more family flat. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think in both instances you see something that is breathing new life. Or in all of these instances, you see something that's breathing new life into a franchise. And also, in the case of Ghostbusters and Jumanji, taking the franchise in a new direction. Mm-hmm. I think, in particular with Jumanji, taking the franchise into a new direction. There is talk of a third one, as there should be. Th- those two have both been a lot of fun, and we're um, also still going to get more, more of Ghostbusters, more of Creed. This conversation will be ongoing. It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the day is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound on the Arctic round from a good ship taut and free. And we don't give a damn. When we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui, pulling down to old Maui, my boys, pulling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic round, rolling down to old Maui. Once more we sail with a northerly gale towards our island home. Our mainmast's sprung, our whaling done, and we ain't got far to roam. Six hellish months we passed away on the cold Kamchatka Sea. But now we're bound from the Arctic, rolling down to Old Maui. Rolling down to Old Once more we sail with a northerly gale to the ice 
and wind and rain. Them coconut fronds, them tropical lands we soon shall see again. Our stunsel plumes are carried away. What care we for the sound? A living tale is after us. Thank God we're homeward bound. Is far astern. Them tropical glades, them coconut maids are waiting our return. Even now their big brown eyes look out, hoping some fine day to see our baggy sails running for the gales, rolling down to old That was the old Maui from the Ragtag Bunch live at the Tiger Room. If you feel like ever catching the Ragtag Bunch live and you're in the Fort Wayne area, you can always find us at J.K. O'Donnell's on the last Thursday of every month. Uh, it is usually an all-ages show. It starts around 7. Uh, place fills up fast, so if you feel like catching us, you're going to have to stake your seat out kind of early. We're now going to turn things over to Mr. Movie Lover, also known as our friend Bill Silkworth. He has a YouTube channel called Mr. Movie Lover, and he actually did a really fun video on Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I would encourage you to check out. We'll put a link in our show notes. He is the guest for our spotlight today, kind of picking up where we left off last episode with 90s Spielberg. This time, welcome to Jurassic Park. Okay, so let's talk about Jurassic Park. This movie was one of the best of all times. A goat, if you will. And I'm not just talking about a goat you lazily bring up from some sort of hidden compartment to attract a T-Rex. Where did that come from? Do they have goats just sitting around the ground on a leash waiting for lunch? Anyways, when discussing such a film, we could talk about the special effects that still hold up today, or the score that probably is one of my favorite John Williams works of all time. And that's saying something. I love how the theme can be used to convey the majesty of seeing these giant creatures for the first time, or the peaceful nature of some of the dinos just being dinos. We could talk about how one of the main characters in the franchise, the Velociraptor, was almost nothing like how they portrayed them in the films. We could even discuss all the difficulties they had, from starting out with using claymation to the life-size animatronic T-Rex that would go a little crazy when it got wet. Good thing there wasn't any rain on that scene. Those are all great topics, but I don't want to do that here. Here I want to discuss what the film meant to me as a kid, and probably the effect it had on me. So to do that, we travel way back to the late 80s and early 90s. My childhood was littered with dinosaurs. They were all the rage. 
The Land Before Time came out in 1988, the endearing tale of Littlefoot, the young dino trekking away to find his lost parents. There was a sort of live-action dino sitcom called Dinosaurs that came out in 91, and their particularly memorable PBS miniseries called The Dinosaurs, with an exclamation point. It shared all the current theories about them at the time, with the help of my favorite paleontologist, Robert Baker. He was one of the first to say that they were warm-blooded animals, instead of the giant lizards that they were portrayed before, as well as how they evolved into birds. If you've seen Jurassic Park The Lost World, there's a paleontologist with a cowboy hat and a beard who had to be based off his likeness. I love this miniseries, and it stuck with me still today. Looking back, I'm surprised that it only had four episodes, because I swear I was obsessed with it. It had a realistic animation of how all the dinosaurs would have behaved, and I thought it was so realistic. I was 12 back then, and then this commercial came out for a movie that looked like it had real live dinosaurs. Now we're finally at the main part of this dino rant. After we learned of Jurassic Park, this movie to end all dinosaur movies, my father knew it was based off a book. And if there's one thing that me and my brother could agree on back then, it was that a book about runaway dinosaurs was awesome. So my dad and I took turns reading Jurassic Park out loud to my little brother. I don't remember a movie before Jurassic Park came out that I did so much preparation for. I remember us reading at home, in the car, at the public swimming pool, everywhere. By the way, reading it led to Michael Crichton becoming one of my favorite authors as well. Andromeda Strain, Congo, Sphere, Timeline, even Prey, all are some of the most enjoyable books to read. So there we are sitting around reading this wonderful adventure, and then, after we're all done, we finally get to go to theaters and see these amazing creatures come to life. When Grant and Sadler see the Bronchiosaurus for the first time, and the music begins to swell, and would you look at that? We're back to talking about the amazing CJN soundtrack. Of course, what makes Jurassic Park so great as well was that Crichton was hired to write it, so almost everything in the movie came straight from the book. He did have to cut a decent bit. For instance, there's a whole additional adventure that Grant went on after the control room attack. But 12-year-old me and 41-year-old me both love this movie still. Does it hold up 29 years later? Mm, yes! The blend of practical and computer effects to create dinosaurs still look amazing, even more so than lots of movies that came out almost 20 years later. I'm looking specifically at the Phantom Menace over there in the corner. We know what you did. The sequel book came out a few years later, and I consumed that whole thing on one trip down to Florida. The book's much better than the sequel movie, by the way. Especially since not only did they cut some of the cool stuff, like a dinosaur that had a stealthy ability just like the Predator, but they added that silly T-Rex goes to town third act. And they also filled it with quite a few things that were cut from the first book to movie. Once we had the movie on DVD and it came out with all the behind-the-scenes footage, I swear I fell in love with the movie again, seeing all the intricate processes that it took to make it really intrigued me. When Jurassic World came out in 2015, I had the opportunity to prepare my 12-year-old son to watch that film. And since it wasn't based on its own standalone novel, we just watched through the first movies to prepare for this one. Yes, even that third mess. And I really think it was a special time for us as well. So Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton, and Steven Spielberg have created multi-generation bonding moments. And that is why I wanted to discuss it. Side note. I watched Jurassic Park again just now when I decided to talk about this with my daughter, who is the same age that my brother was when we first went to go see it. And she said it was boring? Even the T-Rex scene? Ugh. So, I guess it's not for everyone. But now I'm going to have to look for an upcoming movie that I can bond with my daughter on. Something that we can spend some time preparing for and really making it a great memory that will last with her as long as Jurassic Park has with me. It'll be hard, but I know it must be somewhere. I'll just keep looking. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps storytelling breakdown reach more people and grow our community. 
Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. This is the first episode we have started production on since the Campaign Diaries dropped. A massive thank you to Michael Ganser and Jeremy Stroop, both for playing in the D&D games Stephen and I run, and for delivering superb artwork that really showcases what they can do and the spirits of the games. Currently, our plan is to drop two Campaign Diaries every month, in addition to the monthly episode release. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.